Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Luke chapter 7. It bears repeating, but it's great to be back with all of you. Uh, The time away for rest and renewal was great. I pray it'll be of great benefit to this church uh, in the days, years, decades to come. Uh, Thank you again for making it possible for me and my family uh, to be away. And thank you for being a church in which the weakness and desperation of your pastor can be shared. And it's among people that we love and who love us and will pray for us as we pray for you all. So let's pray. Father, as Rob said, we are weak and at times wayward people. We need your presence with us through your word and by your spirit. So Father, be pleased to meet your people, to grow us, to change us, to conform us more and more into the image of of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week and this week, we're going to have a little bit more kind of general introductions to Luke because uh, instead of having weeks after week of standalone messages, we are camped out in Luke for the next bit. Um, so we're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so focusing our attention on 12 verses. Now, why? In a word, to get to know Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, a bit better. Now, Jesus said, as we read later in Luke chapter 24, that the entire Bible, promises made and promises kept, are about him. We've got the Old Testament, Jesus predicted, the Gospels, Jesus revealed, Acts, Jesus preached, the letters, Jesus explained, and Revelation, Jesus expected. Now, the four Gospels are foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he continues to do now through his indwelling spirit in his people in the church. We're here in the Gospel according to Luke. It's the longest book in the New Testament, believe it or not, when you consider number of verses. It's volume one of that two-part Luke-Acts Now, if Matthew is a Bible scholar and Mark is a storyteller, Luke is an investigative reporter. Luke is unique. There are lots of parables, as we will see. We have already seen and will continue to see that Luke shows us that Jesus has a special concern for those on the edges or on the margins of society at that time. Women, children, the poor. Luke emphasizes the incarnation, the salvation of body and soul, that is, spiritual and physical restoration. More than any other gospel, Luke highlights the role of the Holy Spirit and prayer. He highlights and draws attention to Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example. 
Luke is the gospel for everyone socially, top to bottom, and ethnically as we see a movement from east to west. Now, who is Luke and when did he write? Uh, Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. Luke, we read in Colossians 3, is the beloved physician, most likely writing in the early 60s AD. We are here in our series, Knowing for Sure the Gospel According to Luke. Uh, Last week and this week, we're going to look just briefly at those first four verses. Turn with me to Luke 1, where I'll read 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And those are the things, of course, he's been taught about Jesus. Here in these first four verses of Luke, you hear the purpose and the plan to, to provide certainty about the person and work of Jesus. Not arrogant, overconfident, you know, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. Not that kind of certainty, but a humble certainty and sureness. A certainty and sureness about Jesus. And if you're certain and sure about Jesus, it's okay to be uncertain and unsure about lots of other things. That's his purpose. He's got a plan. He's going to write an orderly account, not a haphazard, not a... um, not going from one thing to the other, but an orderly account, a narrative account that is historically accurate, thoroughly researched and well-organized to show, again, who Jesus is and what he came to do. And if you want to capture in a few words what Jesus himself he came, says he came to do, it's to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10, to save, to seek and to save all kinds of people who are lost in all kinds of ways. Well, what does Luke want? What does he want for his initial reader, Theophilus, readers then, readers like us now? What does he want? He wants us to all to know for sure that Jesus is for real. Last week, we looked at verses 18 through 23 of chapter 7, and we saw where Luke showed us a few things about doubt and what to do about doubt. Remember, John the Baptist was in prison. His belief is shaken. You see, Jesus wasn't meeting his expectations. Where's the judgment? What does Jesus do? He quotes Isaiah about God's mercy, compassion. You see, there's the first coming and the arrival, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. But then there's the second coming and the return and the consummation of the kingdom of God. Jesus shows up in grace. He returns in glory. And in between those two markers, it's a time of mercy. We saw last week that we are to recognize that doubt is common, to express our doubt and to hold on to God's word of promise. And Jesus concludes by saying that anyone who does this, who holds on to the word of promise in the midst of doubt will be blessed. We saw in verse 23. 
The bottom line we came to last week is when in doubt, don't look to yourself, don't look around, look to Jesus. Take your questions to Jesus. Did we just not sing that? Take your cares, your concerns, your questions to Jesus. He really can't handle it. So let's move now into this further narrative account. And I want to begin just by asking a question. What time is it? Now, some of you might say it's time to get going. It's time to get going so we can get out of here. I hope that's not really what time you think it is. Now, you might look at your watch, but I'm not thinking that. You might look at your smartphone to see what time it is. You might not. Good, we don't have a clock in here. That's really good. <laughs> so what time is it? That's not what I'm talking about. Rather, I want, to answer, I want us to answer that question by looking at God's word and then looking at our lives. See, God's word is both a window through through which we see God as he's revealed himself, but it's also a mirror that we can look into and see ourselves as well. Because when you know what time it is, you can act appropriately. It's time to get up. It's time to go to sleep. There's the right thing at the wrong time. Because we find ourselves, right, doing inappropriate things, doing things at the inappropriate time. What time is it? Well, in today's text, we move from John's question for Jesus to Jesus' statement about John to the crowd. And by including this, Luke is going to tell his reader then, and he's going to tell us now what time it is. Join with me as I read Luke 7, verses 24 through 35. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." 
by arranging his narrative to include this, Luke, again, is telling the reader what time it is. It's time first for the kingdom of God to arrive. It's time for the purpose of God to be acknowledged. And it's time for people to act appropriately. It's time for the kingdom of God to arrive, the purpose of God to be acknowledged, and for people to act appropriately. So let's look, first of all, that it's time for the kingdom of God to arrive. We see that in verses 24 through 28. You heard Jesus ask the crowd some questions, rhetorical questions, especially the first two, and these are, are expecting a negative answer. Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? In Greek literature at that time, a reed was weak and fragile. But Jesus is, 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 is using this not just to talk about the fact that, yeah, of course you're going to see reeds in the wilderness. No, he's talking about John. John the Baptist is not weak. He's not swayed by pressure, the pressures of human opinion to change views. 2023, how many people really stand on principle? How many people really stand on a conviction or are they blowing in the wind? The answer may be blowing in the wind, as it were, but, but not, not here with John. No, he's in prison because he's calling out sin with Herod. He's not a reed that's swayed by the pressures of human opinion. He's not changing views. Jesus is just using common sights of reeds blowing near the rivers in the wilderness to illustrate spiritual truth. And neither is, is John dressed in soft clothing. You find those in, in, in the courts of the king's palaces. We know from descriptions in several places in the Gospels, uh, John went to an interesting um, clothing store, didn't he? He's got his own apparel out there for his work in the wilderness. That's real common in the palace. Soft clothing is not common in the wilderness. In fact, it's not part of who John is. But Jesus then asked a third question, and this one expects a positive answer. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. Because you see, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where the Lord promises my messenger to come before my Messiah, to lead the way, to announce the way, to prepare the way. He's the front man, the advance man. As John would say, as recorded, I believe, in John, that he must increase and I must decrease. God would send a special messenger before the Messiah comes, and that special messenger is John. And if you look back earlier in Luke and Zechariah, the angel speaking to Zechariah about who John would be, yes, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. Notice at the beginning of verse 28 the affirmation that Jesus gives of John. Remember, this is the one that doubted, wavered a bit. Jesus, is he really the one? 
or should we look for another? Here's what Jesus says about John. I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. It's interesting, isn't it? John doesn't hear that, does he? He's in prison. Jesus is saying that to the crowds. Proverbs says a man is tested by the praise he receives. Jesus, and we know, is praising John. John himself doesn't hear it. But notice how that verse continues. Jesus affirms every believer. It's amazing. The verse continues, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Woe, Jesus, are you contradicting yourself? Maybe at first glance, no one's better than John, but everybody's better than John. How can that be? Well, of course, we're going to get to that. You see, the forerunner of the Messiah is peering into the arrival of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus arrives, those who flock to him and believe in him are brought into the kingdom of God. The most insignificant person in the kingdom of God, the least, and you have to think of Luke's language because it's full of the lost and the least. The least in the kingdom is greater than John. What? Why? Because of the arrival of the kingdom. Uh, the movement from the old era to the new era John, as it were, lived on the edge of the era of salvation, and we live in that era. We see the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. John looks forward to them being fulfilled. We have an experience in a greater measure of the Holy Spirit we have a clearer understanding of God as Father. Think about how Jesus reveals the Father. Think about the fact that Jesus says, it's better that I go away. If I don't go away, the Spirit is not going to come. And yes, it really is better now for us than to actually have been there. You see, in the New Covenant, our historical position is far greater okay some of you can answer this what is the official cap of the major of major league baseball come on new, what new era. new era yes the official cap of major league baseball you go to the reds and what does it have on the side the little symbol for what new era every, my friends every time I see that think of that it's a reminder where am I? The new era of salvation. Now, I don't think new era, it's a great historical company about 100 years old. I don't think they may have been thinking about that, but we certainly can, can use that as a pointer to being in the new era. So it's not only time for the arrival of the kingdom of God, it's also time for the purpose of God to be acknowledged. We see that in verses 29 and, and 30. 
Now, this is Luke's additional aside to tell of the reaction of the crowd to Jesus' commendation of John. You may, in your Bible translations, have it in parentheses. John's supporters in the crowd praised God because their prophet had been upheld by Jesus. But the Pharisees and the lawyers linked John and Jesus together and rejected both of them. I mean, recall the ministry of John the Baptist. You can look back to Luke 3, in particular verse 3. John is out there proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the the forgiveness of sins. And people, common people, tax collectors are coming to him, hearing the call, being baptized, receiving the baptism of John, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Those of you that have been around for a while know that Luke likes to frame things in in sets of two. You know, you got John the Baptist and Jesus, Martha and Mary, um, a tax collector and a Pharisee. Both go up to the temple to pray. You've got sets of two. Well, here is a set of two. Two groups. The first group is all the people and the tax collectors, the, the least, as it were. And what's their response? They receive the message of John. They are willing to repent by accepting baptism. Remember, wait a minute, why why do we have to get baptized? John's announcing the coming judgment, getting right with God, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. People are hearing that message. They are being baptized. They are receiving it. And they're declaring God just. A little bit tricky language, not trying to make the human, the evaluator of God, but rather it's the sense of recognizing. They are recognizing that that John has God's seal of approval and had offered a way of salvation based on repentance and faith, not based on rigorous law keeping. So there's one group, all the people, including the tax collectors, but there's a second group, the Pharisees and the lawyers, and we've already seen some interactions already in Luke. And whereas the response of the first group was to receive the message, the response here of this second group is to reject the message of John, to to not willing to repent, not willing to undergo baptism, refusing baptism. You see, they didn't recognize, as we read in verse 30, the purpose of God. God's purpose in providing a way of salvation through mercy and grace. Remember Exodus 34, the second time the tablets are are presented and, and God, the Lord, I am, says, this is who I am, a God gracious and merciful, right? Abounding in steadfast love. Do you hear God announce who he is in that fashion to you? I mean, I guess they got those tests out there, right? What, uh, like, what's, your, what's your first response when you hear this word? You've got to write it down. I mean, how many of us, when we think of the Lord or God, say, ah, the one who's gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love? Those he saves are his delight, we sang a moment ago. 
they are rejecting, they are refusing God's way. It's a dangerous place to be. Paul says pretty clearly to the Galatian church, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All who rest and rely on doing are under a curse. It's a burden. It's a dangerous place to be. So we've seen already it's time for the arrival of the kingdom of God. It's time for the acknowledgement or the recognition of the purpose of God. And finally, it's time for people to act appropriately. We see that in verses 31 through 34. You know, I think it's probably safe to say that what's considered appropriate or not appropriate has fallen on hard times, right? I can remember growing up, the, the voice from my mother, that's not appropriate. Was it a law in U.S. code, whatever? No. But it wasn't appropriate. I mean, think about all the things that a generation ago we would say, that's really inappropriate. It's not only tolerated now, it's sort of affirmed and encouraged. There used to be a fairly common agreement as to what was appropriate and what was not. Again, today, there's not only no pushback at times, but there's an affirmation. The, the lines have blurred between the acceptable and the unacceptable, the appropriate and the inappropriate. And Jesus is going to bring this out when he presents this picture, this critique of people, and he compares them to something obviously that had been taking place around him, children playing in the marketplace. And Jesus in particular is saying this is the attitude of the religious leaders they're like children who demand others follow their plans and their ideas. I think it would be so fun to be um, somebody, the, uh, the writer, the screenwriter, the, uh, the producer, the director, put this little scene, right, in the documentary. This marketplace of children playing games. I mean, they start off by playing the flute, you dance. It's a wedding. It's joyful. But, but where is the dancing? Okay, let's switch it up. Let's sing a dirge. Let's weep. Let's have the atmosphere of a funeral. But with this music, where is the weeping? What would be appropriate based on the music is to either dance or weep. The religious leaders Jesus is illustrating are complaining against, they're not satisfied with either John the Baptist and they're certainly not satisfied with Jesus. And again, Jesus is making a generalization. Of course, there are people coming to faith even out of this group, but by and large, not. 
So John the Baptist, he's rejected. Why? He's too weird, right? He's fasting. He's got an ascetic way of life. He's self-denial. He's calling for repentance. He's calling for the godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation, as Paul writes the Corinthian church. So John the Baptist is rejected. He's too weird. But the Son of Man is rejected. Why? Because he's too wild. He's not fasting, he's feasting. And certainly Jesus is not going to be accused of being uh, in a non-aesthetic or an ascetic way of life. He's associating with people, right? The lost and the least. And next Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus in the home of a Pharisee and a sinful woman being forgiven, demonstrating great love for her Savior. You see, John is calling for repentance. Jesus is calling to embrace the joy of forgiveness, God's way of salvation. And you see that already in Luke. So John, the messenger, and Jesus, the message itself, are both rejected. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says this, no matter how God speaks to this people, unbelief is not satisfied Contrary to what we often assume, unbelief is not thoughtful and rational, but twisted and perverse. There's two kinds of music being played. And they're both rejected. Oh, you don't like wedding music? I'll give you funeral music. You don't like funeral music? I'll give you wedding music. You know, the the problem is not with the speaker. Or the musician. The problem is with the hearer. In a way, Jesus is saying, uh, we've got to become okay with the weirdness and the wildness of Christianity. When the music is played, the appropriate action is not taken. There is a refusal to be glad and a refusal to be sad. So what time is it? Luke wants us to know it's time for the kingdom of God to arrive, for the purpose of God to be acknowledged, and it's time for people to act appropriately. Let's look at verse 35 as this section wraps up. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's a way of saying it's demonstrated. God's truth, his wisdom is revealed in the results that they produce, in the fruit that is produced. God's way, his purpose, his plan, his wisdom is is justified, it's demonstrated, evidence is given, it is shown to be right because people's lives are changing. There's a rescue and renewal that we're seeing in Luke take place in the ministry of Jesus, and indeed has taken place in the ministry of John the Baptist. Children here are those who have responded to John and Jesus by receiving and not rejecting the message. So what time is it? What is it? Is it time to wrap up? Probably, getting close. 
Is it time to, to continue to leave, to leave and to rest and enjoy God's creation, enjoy time with mother? Yeah, it's getting to be that time. But, but what time is it? Well, Paul says to the Corinthian church, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, it's time for both sorrow over sin and joy in forgiveness. It's a time now for for weeping and for dancing. There's a lot of stuff that we might do that's inappropriate and it's awkward and we're embarrassed, right? Goodness knows. I I could fill out a list. But this isn't a matter of being awkward or embarrassed. This is a matter of life and death. The music that brings out tears and the music that brings out joy and laughter. Weeping and rejoicing. In a word, what time is it? It's time for all of us young and old, to repent and to believe. You see, in Luke, Jesus is revealing who God is. The God who is merciful, the God who is gracious, the God who is compassionate. My friends, it's real important for us to know what time it is. Don't look at your watch. Don't look at your smartphone. Don't look at the wall clock. Look to God. Look to his word. Ask his spirit to be at work. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that we were so sinful and wicked that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, we thank you that those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before him as he headed to the cross. Father, we thank you that Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. What an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and the sacrifice. Oh, Father, may your word that we have heard take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus, our suffering Savior and our risen and reigning Lord for your glory and for for the good of your people now and forever. Amen. Time is it?